It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Eric Motley grew up in Madison Park, a small Alabama town founded by freed slaves. The community helped raise him, including a woman known as Aunt Shine. She was the great-granddaughter of the town's founder and would require Motley to recite the preamble to the Declaration of Independence, the Gettysburg Address, and the preamble to the U.S. Constitution. Because she felt that it was so important that I realized that my birthright as a citizen of America, of Madison Park, came with no, with no um, easy costs. In today's show, Eric Motley, who wrote a book about Madison Park, tells us about coming of age in this remarkable place where self-determination, hope, and unceasing belief in the American dream were constant lessons. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Alma and Joseph Gildenhorn book series. Aunt Shine, or Emma Madison Bell, was Madison Park's matriarch. While Eric Motley was raised by his grandparents, Aunt Shine inserted herself into Motley's academic life, ensuring he was excelling in school, even standing up in church on Sundays to announce Motley's progress and shortcomings. Motley's book, Madison Park, A Place of Hope, talks about other town characters who, as Motley puts it, taught him everything he needed to know about love and faith. He says there are lessons from Madison Park for all of us about how to live in the world today. Madison Park is a metaphor, a metaphor for community, a metaphor for relationships, a metaphor for the ties that bind us together in a very politically divisive, polarized, culturally confusing world in which we live. From Madison Park, Motley eventually ended up in the Oval Office as a special assistant to President George W. Bush. He's also an executive vice president at the Aspen Institute. In December, he sat down with journalist Joshua Johnson. Johnson hosts the public radio show 1A. Motley talks with Johnson about personal stories of racial injustice, how a graveyard became a classroom, and how hope springs eternal even in troubled times. Here's their conversation. Hi, everybody. Thank you all for coming to the Aspen Institute and making time for us. Eric Motley, since you got the benefit of such a friendly introduction, I want to start out with a story of yours that's embarrassing. All right. Talk to us about the rabbits and the turtles. Oh, there gosh. was a moment in church where you were basically called out in front of the entire church. And I ask this by way of describing this community, Madison Park, where you grew up. Yes. I think there's something in that story that illustrates who the kind of people were that you grew up with. Tell us a story about the rabbits and the turtles. All right, well, it begins before the church itself. So my first grade teacher was Mrs. Highcamp. Probably I shouldn't use her name. And, and Mrs. Highcamp wrote a note home to my grandmother informing her that I had been demoted from the rabbits reading group to the turtles. And this was, this was really devastating. And so my grandmother got the note, and she started reading the note. And my grandmother is not a discriminating person at all but she knows the difference between rabbits and turtles. And she was concerned. And she phoned a woman in our neighborhood by the name of Emma Madison Bell, a great granddaughter of Eli Madison. And Eli Madison was? Eli Madison was the founder of Madison Park. He was one of the first freed slaves who organized the entire group of 14 who established his community in 1880. And so Emma Madison Bell, affectionately known by all of us as Aunt Shine, because everywhere she went, light followed. Um, she was a muscular woman, muscular in faith and physique, and she came over to the house. 
And Aunt Shine had been retired already as a school teacher, probably some 40 years. And she took the letter, and she looked at me, and she asked if I could excuse myself. And she started a conversation with my grandmother. And she determined that there were issues here, and she needed to intervene. And so she called me back into the room, Joshua, and she said to me, we're going to restore you back to rabbit status. <laughs> and so that was, that was encouraging, but coming from Aunt Shine, I knew that was also going to be a lot of work. That was not a yeah, suggestion. Yeah, that was yes, an edict. Yes. And so, but the following Sunday, to take you to the church, where all of the community, uh, our parishioners, there was a Baptist church and a Methodist church. We were the Methodist. And Aunt Shine somehow persuaded the minister uh, to make some comments. It was as if it was a public service announcement. And she stood up before the entire congregation, and she said, Brothers and sisters, we have a problem. <laughs> Little Eric Motley, pointing at me, who was once a rabbit, has become a turtle. And we're going to restore him back to rabbit status. Amen, sister, amen. Let's restore him back to rabbit status. And I'm organizing a group of retired teachers who are going to help tutor him. But this afternoon, I'm going to be at his house with his grandparents. And we're going to build him a library. And whatever books you have that you could spare, I want you to bring them by the Motley House this afternoon. And Joshua, it was as if it was a paper drive. I was on the back porch with my grandmother, with Aunt Shine and my grandfather, and people brought whatever they had. They came for conversation. Uh, they brought books, a 1972 Life magazine, a 1964 Jet, uh, an almanac from 1963, um, a wonderful volume of English verse, minus its table of contents and index, but so richly sewn with Wordsworth and Tennyson and Keats and Shelley. Um, and that was their investment. And Unshine mobilized this troop of retired teachers who came by every afternoon for two years until I was restored back to rabbit status. It didn't take two years, <laughs> but until I was restored back to rabbit status. But they kept coming because they realized it was much more potential. Other than the inherent sense of, oh my goodness, that you probably felt in that moment, right. wanting to kind of like crawl into a crack in the pew and disappear. There's something in that story of Madison Park, particularly Aunt Shine herself, and the meaning of the town, the legacy that she brought, that wasn't, from the way that you write about Madison Park in your book, that wasn't an isolated incident. It was not at all. It was not at all. Eli Madison had a grandson, and that grandson was Arthur Madison. He was the first to really go away to college from this community. He went to Bowdoin College, and he later studied law, and he became uh, an acolyte to Thurgood Marshall. And when he came back from New York, he started uh, citizenship classes for the slaves to teach them their basic rights and to help them to learn to read and to write and to understand uh, the preamble to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. So when Aunt Shine came by the house every afternoon to tutor me, there was his regimen. I would have to stand before we got to math and the social studies and, and reading, and I would have to recite by memory, the preamble to the Declaration of Independence, the Gettysburg Address, and the preamble to the Constitution of the United States. Anybody do that right now? <laughs> Any, not? Okay. Four score and seven years ago. Right. 
because she felt that it was so important that I realized that my birthright as a citizen of America, of Madison Park, came with no, with no um, easy costs. There were a lot of people who made enormous sacrifices to establish the community, and that I had a responsibility as a citizen to preserve the values and to understand my responsibility as a citizen. Talk a little bit more about where that sense of citizenship came from. I can imagine <coughs> that the experience of other little black boys in Alabama growing up around the state at the time that you grew up was not necessarily focused on being a good American citizen. Black boys across the country were having, depending on where they lived, a very different experience engaging with America. Yours was quite unique, and you talk in the book about how almost lucky, how yeah. serendipitous that was for you. You could have turned out very yeah, differently. I could have, yes. I, I, I prefer the term blessed. Um, you know, life is filled with a lot of incidents, accidents, and providence. And to my good fortune, I grew up in this house with my grandparents, who adopted my mom, who later adopted me, who wanted to nurture me along the lines of things eternal, and who took a real interest in someone in the family getting an education. Uh, they expressed that concern to everyone they met, to a guy at the grocery store who had a University of Alabama sweatshirt on. Could you talk to my grandson about the University of Alabama? <laughs> Ma'am, this shirt was given to me by my cousin. Um, the people they cleaned house for, my grandfather was a carpenter. Anyone that they could engage who had the opportunity of enlightenment that an education could afford, they wanted to invite into my universe. And so, because they expressed a very public interest in my being uh, an enlightened individual, I think their neighbors and our friends and the people in the community took an interest. And I think everyone in the community of Madison Park realized that uh, education was that great opportunity to expand beyond where we had been to where we could go as citizens of Madison Park and at, at large. Tell us more about your grandparents. You referred to them as mom and daddy. Mom and daddy. So my grandfather, uh, who was an extraordinary individual, a man of such enormous decorum, he had almost Victorian sensibilities. He um, had been educated. He learned Latin at a very early age, and, and he was a mathematician. He was a carpenter, kind of a pseudo-architect, very disciplined and very focused, and a man of very few words. Uh, but when he did speak, they were words that were worthy of listening to. And he just had a wonderful sense of decorum and discipline about him. My grandmother, a wonderful counterpoint, if opposites could ever attract, when she was born, it was the same year that the radio debuted, and people said she, like the radio, never stopped talking. Uh, she was vivacious. She would finish sentences for him and for everyone else in the community. Uh, she liked to jitterbug. She was a great personality, but she was also a person who was extremely disciplined and very focused. And so these two individuals, uh, never having had children of their own, had a neighbor uh, who was dying of cancer, and that neighbor asked of them, um, a request of a lifetime, and that was if they would consider adopting one of their children. And they had selected a child in particular, my mother, Barbara Ann. And so, out of 14 kids, abject poverty. And I think without hesitation, without vexation, maybe a little contemplation, they decided that they would accept this invitation from uh, their neighbor, Bernice and Amos Perry and they adopted my mother. And so they were people of enormous generosity and concern about community. And as a result, community was very concerned about what they were trying to create in their own home. 
Uh, my grandfather built most of the black churches in Montgomery, Alabama in the 50s and 40s. Uh, he delayed going off to the army because he wanted to finish building a house for a neighbor of his. Um, there were people of enormous um, integrity. Now, the way you describe Barbara Ann, you sounded like you were much more like Mama and Daddy than she was. She oh, had... Yeah. Well, we'll talk about her. Talk yeah. about the friction between them. You know, and I want to say one more thing about my grandfather. I think it's so important to say that my grandfather had a sense of his heritage and legacy. And he took that with enormous responsibility. He was named by his grandfather. Can I just put a footnote here? Mm -hmm. My grandfather has one or two recollections of growing up in Madison Park as a child. He remembers going to his own grandfather's house, John Wesley Motley. And it was a shotgun house. You know what a shotgun house is? That's if you shot through the front door, it would go right through the back door. Mm -hmm. Three consecutive rooms. They were extremely poor. And they were in the middle of this plantation, the shotgun house. And my grandfather remembers going there. And there were two images that he held on to for the rest of his life. Over the front door was a cross, a cross that had been crafted by his grandfather's own hands, a wooden cross. Over the back door was an extract from a newspaper. It was a photograph of Abraham Lincoln. And so in their coming and going, they were reminded that there is a God who creates all things and orders all things, that we're no less than the trees and the stars. We have a right to be here. And that God endows individuals with the power and the fortitude to be agents of change. And so for my grandfather, that was really important. And for his grandfather to name him George Washington Motley, so that he could be reminded of his own birthright as an American, was very important to him. And my grandfather never refused in writing his name out. George Washington Motley. No, sir, just your initials. George Washington Motley. <laughs> He wanted to remind himself, he wanted to celebrate that legacy, and he wanted to bestow that sense of legacy and stewardship to me. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. For more great listening, check out our sister podcast, Aspen Insight. The monthly show brings you stories of hope and change from around the world. In an upcoming episode, you'll hear from a woman who used Facebook Messenger to help her aunt survive Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. Learn how to become a more active citizen and create change in your community or across the nation. And discover a list of curated fiction with social impact. Hear these stories on Aspen Insight's upcoming episode, which drops Thursday. Now back to our featured conversation. Here's Eric Motley. So they adopted my mother, Barbara Ann Perry. One of 14. One of 14. She was nine years old, about to turn 10. Could you imagine being one of 14 and all of a sudden being extracted from your family, your other siblings, and imported into this house of decorum and discipline with two individuals who had no kids of their own, who got up every morning at 445, who came to the table every morning, did prayer, did chores, and then went out to pursue their professional careers. And so all of a sudden, my mother, age nine, found herself in this alien environment, loving, caring, supportive, but just a very different environment from having to sit at the table and wait to get leftovers and waiting for your sister's shoes or waiting for the dress that your cousin outgrew. 
and they embraced her, they loved her. That was a very different environment than I grew up in. From day one, I was in the Motley household. And I'd like to probably think that they decided that, you know, out of this human material, we could shape something and we could create something uh, that is good and that is beautiful and that is true to what could be created out of human material. But Barbara Ann ultimately kind of chafed under their, their disciplinary way. She did. She was very, she came from a very undisciplined environment and had a hard time adjusting to the discipline of the Motleys. And so she became an even freer spirit than the spirit probably commanded of her. And so uh, she, um, at age 19, uh, with a boyfriend that she had uh, met at high school, uh, became pregnant and eventually gave birth to an unformed bundle of possibility. And you... That, that's, that's me. That's, that's, me, right. the, that's me. That's me. You're following the story. Uh, <laughs> We're talking about <laughs> that's, this mostly yes, formed yes, bundle. Yes, yes, Unformed bundle of possibility. Well, but you, <clears> and <throat> I imagine that someone like you was right up the Motley's Alley in terms of being studious and being being shapeable and being someone the community could kind of invest in. But I imagine that you were, at the time, call me crazy, a bit of a nerd. And I would love to hear from you how your particular peculiar sense of unformed nerdiness yes. played in Madison Park, especially because academics and black boys are often at loggerheads culturally, that right. it can be read as trying to act white. Right, yes, yes. I feel like we have so much in common, Joshua. You know? You know? <laughs> I didn't want to bring it up. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but since you said it... From one nerd to another nerd. Exactly. Actually, the, the term is a, is a blurred. A black nerd. Have you heard this? Yes. From uh, one blurred to another. Oh, thank you for informing me exactly. of that. Exactly. Thank right. you. I'm well, glad. you don't show up at meetings anymore, okay. so I have to tell you in the public. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, well, you know, I think, you know, in my house it was okay to be different. And uh, in my house it was okay to be individual. And in my house there were great expectations. And in Madison Park we considered ourselves not statistics, but people who had to live into a promise. And so my grandparents kind of sought to making sure that I understood that. Now, I had children in the community. My class, my neighborhood kids, I named them Boo Boo, Bimp, Maine, LaRod, Pee Wee, Cricket. They were all kids, the Matt Carters who lived across the street. And, um, and we played together. And so at a very early age, they helped me to understand and to appreciate that I had no athletic abilities whatsoever. <laughs> and, uh, and they were very judgmental, but very embracing. And so I became the best scorekeeper in Madison Park. I was always given the task of keeping score and serving as hind catcher. And so uh, I never will forget the argument taking place right in front of me between Maine and Boo Boo and Bimp. And you know how you divide up teams. I'll take this person, I'll take that person. And I remember someone saying, but I got him yesterday. <laughs> and they went, yeah, yeah, but it's your turn again. And, and Maine coming up to me and he's just saying, look, you're a great scorekeeper. You're the best scorekeeper we could ever have. Just stick to keeping score. And in many ways, it kind of affirmed my own recognition that there are certain things that I'm good at and there are things that I'm not good at. And for my childhood playmates, that was okay. They made a place for me in the platum of our daily activities. There was a point at which you began to become aware 
of the world around you in a more visceral way. You talk in the book about going to the library and seeing this old guy in a wheelchair, kind of broken down old man. And it took you a while to realize that that broken down old man was George Wallace mm. that you were seeing yeah. in the library. Your career ultimately went through politics and policy. Was that kind of the beginning of your visceral awareness, interest in politics in terms of your own life, or, or when did that begin to occur to you? It was the beginning of my own awareness on many fronts. Um, there's a wonderful line in Anselm, uh, and it's chapter one. It's the awakening of the mind to the contemplation of God, the awakening of the mind to the contemplation of things which are larger than oneself. Uh, I became totally aware of the idea and the concept of sacrifice. Um, we had no library in Madison Park, and my grandparents would get neighbors when they had to work to drive me to the Montgomery Public Library. Uh, Nebo, who was a hog farmer, uh, another neighbor who was a plumber, Brother McCarter, who was a carpenter, none of them had even been into the Montgomery Public Library. They had not been allowed into the Public Library of Montgomery. I was born in 72. Um, integration in Montgomery, Alabama was still slowly finding its own um, realization. And so I became aware with these people driving me and sitting out in the car for a couple of hours, Joshua, as I rambled through the public library discovering the vast array of ideas and attitudes and cultures, um, the concept of sacrifice. And park on that for one yeah. second. I think a lot of people will look at small town Alabama from a distance and assume that they're just a bunch of hayseeds. These are not stupid people. They may not have been formally educated, but they knew that something in that building was valuable. They knew that something in that building was valuable. They knew that I needed to have access to that, and they were willing to make some personal sacrifices to get me there. My grandfather never went into the Montgomery Public Library. He would sit in the car for hours. He wouldn't listen to the radio fearing that it would run down the battery. Uh, the summers in Alabama can be quite uh, grueling. And he would just sit there and he always kept a little notebook, uh, making list. He was a list maker. And, uh, and I would go in and I would discover the wonderment of the universe. And, and this particular moment I do want to dwell on was I had piled high all around me stacks of books. And I kept seeing from a distance this elderly white man in a wheelchair staring back at me. And I would look at him and he would drop his head. And he would look at me and I would drop my head. And then there was this moment in which he acknowledged me with a nod. And he had a black attendant, a valet, standing at his side, turning pages. And as I started to gather my books up, the librarian, one of the librarians came up and said, all right, Motley boy, it's time for you to gather your stuff up. They all knew me in the library. And, um, and he looked at me, and I looked at him. And as I left and I went back to the car, with sheer excitement, I couldn't wait to tell my grandfather, you never will guess who I just met in the Montgomery Public Library. And my grandfather, who? Who did you meet? And I said, George Wallace. And the embodiment of imprisonment, the embodiment of separation, the embodiment of denying my grandparents, my mother who had never even been in that library, the opportunity to pursue their dreams and their own hopes and aspirations as Americans. And yet, in that one moment, it was as if he was acknowledging that there is irony in history. You know? How did you grow up without a sense of resentment? for the George Wallaces of the world. It would have been very easy for you, and justifiable, right. for you to grow up saying, you know, screw him. 
and and everybody like him. It's unfair to be a black boy in Alabama in this day and age, and I need to be part of a hardcore resistance to that. How much did you navigate resentment as a kid, if at all? You know, my grandfather, in that particular moment, chose to also inform and educate me about who George Wallace was and to help me to understand the vast arc of history. And so it was never the neglect of education and informing me of what my ancestors and what my parents and grandparents had suffered. Um, with that became an awareness of the opportunities that were being afforded to me. My grandparents took enormous care and concern, and maybe some would consider to a fault, to cultivate with me, within me a sense of gratitude and a sense of uh, appreciation for every opportunity that was afforded to me. And so I think they did it with the intent of my not becoming bitter or disillusioned or discontented. Uh, I think they had probably seen a good share of people, friends of theirs and others, who had become disillusioned and discontented and angry and realized that that was never going to provide the type of progress that they envisioned for me. And so it's a realization, but it's also, you don't have time to think about that. To whom much is given, much is required. Not expect it, required. And so we're working really hard cleaning houses at age 60 to make sure that you get an education. You don't have time to be angry. You have time only to get an education, to become informed, and to become an agent of change so that you could help uh, move the needle forward. Martin Luther King has a wonderful line. We read the letter from the Birmingham jail here at the Aspen Institute quite a bit. That we're all a part, and this is a wonderful metaphor for Mar Madison Park, we're all a part of an inescapable network of mutuality. We're tied in a single garment of destiny. And that what affects you also affects me. And I think it was that awareness that was instilled in me at an early age by my grandparents and those tutors. You talk in the book about going to Boys State, then going to Boys Nation, this kind of youth, like mock government mm -hmm. trip that, that boys are still taking today. It's kind of a, a conduit to, to meeting people in politics and policy and government. And there's a girls' state and a girls' nation. A, a girls' well. state and girls' yeah. nation. You described coming to Boys Nation in D.C. and you got to meet uh, Dick Cheney when he mm -hmm. was still at the Pentagon and got to call from there and you know convince yep, your mother yep, that yep. you were actually behaving yourself. Yep, you hadn't like gone to the Pentagon City Mall. <laughs> you were at the Pentagon. And it began to become clear to you that life beyond Alabama was starting to open up. You did go to Samford University. Samford, not to be confused with Stanford University. And Just as rigorous. Just I'm as rigorous. sure it is. Yeah. And began to kind of contemplate a larger life. But Madison Park was still kind of tugging. Mm -hmm. On a human level, how do you deal with that desire to go? Especially when you've been given this really rare, beautiful cocoon that's nurtured you all this time. Talk about the process of learning to break the cocoon. Right. Madison Park was tugging and pushing at the same time. There was a natural tension uh, that comes with growth and one's metamorphosis. Um, one moment that I speak about in the book that is beyond going off to high school is when I got a scholarship to go off to Scotland. And I was greatly concerned. These people who had given their whole lives to me, my grandparents, were now in their 70s and 80s. And there was no caretaker for them. It was me. 
And this sense of abandoning them and their late age uh, greatly concerned me and was, you know, almost an albatross around me that almost prevented me from thinking about going off. There's a wonderful line in Tennyson, to follow knowledge like a sinking star to its outermost bounds, that I found in the Montgomery Public Library and that I later wrote out and put on the board in my, my bedroom. And uh, a neighbor, a person in Madison Park, knew of my consternation, William Winston. And he phoned me and he said, meet me at the graveyard. And, uh, and the graveyard is very significant in my narrative. Meet me at the graveyard. And we met at the graveyard, the Madison Park Cemetery. And uh, we walked across the graveyard. And let me just give you a, a little footnote as to why the graveyard is really important. When I was a small child, those retired teachers, Frankie Lee Madison Winston, granddaughter of Eli Madison, Aunt Shine, Emma Madison Bell, granddaughter, uh, Carrie Madison Say, and their sister-in-law, Prince Ella Madison, who all were my tutors. Prince Ella just died last year at 104. Um, they tucked me under their embrace, their wing, and they would take me to the cemetery to clean graves every three weeks and to leave freshly cut flowers on the graves. Every grave in the Madison Park Cemetery had to be swept of the pine straw, and my job was to do that. And it was there in that place, an evidence of God's grace, that I discovered the people of Madison Park, those whose rest had been won. And Aunt Shine would say to me, sweep a little harder, that's Eli Madison's grave, the founder of Madison Park, and over there is Emma Madison Drain Bell's grave. And Abby Taylor Green, she, used to, she was a seamstress. She made dresses for all the people in Madison Park. And her father, he was a farmer. He gave us the land that you live on. And so I learned the history of Madison Park. And this is a great-grandson's brother of nephew, Nemo Johnson's sister's child, Carrie Madison Say. And so he said, meet me at the graveyard, a place that I knew quite well, that I had learned the history of Madison Park. And he said, over all of these people, many of whom had an enormous influence on your life, my mom, my aunt, Aunt Shine, they gave so much to see you grow and to expand and to discover. This is your time to take Madison Park with you. You're not leaving us. You're taking us on this journey. This is your responsibility. And don't worry. The community took care of you when you were small. We will take care of your grandparents. And I went off to Scotland, and every day, neighbors came by 34 Motley Drive to visit my grandparents and to sit with them to talk. And, uh, and that's community. That's community in the fullest and the richest and most beautiful sense. Uh, it's a sense of responsibility. And uh, I was just back in Madison Park for the launch of this book. And all the descendants came out of all these people buried in the cemetery. And all the people that I knew. And, and William Winston still lives. And having had not been out of the house probably for 10 years, he came out. And, uh, and he said, see, I told you we would make it work. You know? You can find Aspen Ideas To Go in a growing number of places. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Sirius XM's Insight Channel, or Channel 121, and NPR One. Search Aspen Ideas To Go and subscribe so you never miss an episode. 
Coming up, Joshua Johnson takes questions from the audience. Here's Johnson with a question for author Eric Motley. From what you took in terms of going to the University of St. Andrews, we kind of joked about this on 1A, but in a very serious way, that must have liberated you, and it also must have created a mountain of pressure. Because now, if you were to wear before that you were Madison Parks, you describe it as the Duke, the designated university kid. If you didn't know before, now you know. You are our whole, you are our, you are our 401k. We've put everything (laughs) into you. You're already dealing with being a black man in America, growing up in a segregated community, getting ready to fly, what, 4,000 miles from home? And now your whole town has said, we have given it all for you. Average guy would have run and hid. How do you deal with that? Oh, gosh. Joshua, when I was getting ready to go off to St. Andrews, um, the church, the Baptist church and the Methodist church took up an offering. And... I didn't know what was going on. There was a lot of noise in the backyard at my house an hour before I was to go to the airport. And I was going to the airport about four hours early because my grandparents wanted to make sure I didn't miss my flight. <laughs> Your parents are like my parents, yes. kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, it was the Montgomery Airport that I was going to fly from to Atlanta, then to New York. And, yeah. then to, and there was a lot of motion, a lot of commotion. And I went outside, and there were not 100 people, but a lot of people. And it were... It was a whole compilation of people from the churches and from the neighborhood. And they were there. And they had taken up an offering, and the minister was there, and he wanted to say a prayer. Um, Rosebud Hall wanted to sing, Bless Be the Tie That Binds Us. Um, A lady brought me an entire sack of iced potatoes and a container of, cool whip container of collard greens, just in case. Just in case. Just in case they don't have collard greens in Scotland. And... um, and so they were there. And one lady, Aunt B, tucked out a map. And she laid it across the hood of the car. And she said, show us Scotland. And it was a map of Montgomery, Alabama. It was beyond her comprehension. But she was going with me. And she wanted to know where I was going. And so in many ways, I felt like I was an astronaut getting ready to go out of space. And the full awareness of all these people standing around me quickened within me the realization that they were going with me. And that when I left, I had to write more letters, I had to make more calls, I had to stay connected. And one woman in the town, Beulah Bird, who had so little, my grandmother and other neighbors would from time to time take up money to help her pay off her utilities. She, had so, she was a woman of enormous pride. I picked blackberries for her. Um, She reached over to me, and she gave me $5. And I just thought, I can't take $5 from Mrs. Beulah Bird. And my grandfather looked at me, and he nodded. Because he realized that she wanted to be a part of this experience. That was her sacrifice. She wanted to be a part of this experience. And so I think we all should live with the burden of gratitude. And if we don't, we don't realize how fortunate we are. Um, life is filled with what I call REM, relationships, experiences, and memories. 
And they should quicken within us constantly a sense that everything is a gift. Very little do we deserve. Life itself is a gift. And, um, and so going off to Scotland, I felt this enormous burden of gratitude because I realized I couldn't let Beulah Bird down. She gave me $5. And that all these retired teachers had given of themselves. Even teachers in junior high school and high school, my white teachers, if I need to refer to them as such, who were not from Madison Park, who took an interest in me and who wanted to see me succeed. I had all of these people cheering me on. And um, with that, I, it, was, it was a great burden. Uh, but I, I lived into it. One more thing I would ask you before we start taking some of your questions. Your book describes all of the, the various values that you gained from Madison Park and the, the sacrifices of people who loved you. It's a very, it's a dramatic story. Did you enjoy this journey? Where was the fun? Did you just feel like you were working because we have imbued you with the <laughs> dreams and hopes of everyone in Madison County and the spirits of all the slaves who died to make a way for you? Or was any of it just fun? I had a lot of fun. I was naive. I had a lot of fun. There was a point that I came to realize that there were great expectations that I had to live into, but everything was fun. I lived with a grandmother who was the life of every party. Uh, I lived with a grandfather who reminded me that someone had to organize for the party. <laughs> <laughs> and pay for the party. It ain't going to organize itself. You know? And so I lived in... Madison Park for me was what Walden was to Thoreau. I discovered nature. I became a birder before I knew what birding was all about. Uh, I discovered every species of a plant in Madison Park uh, because that was a fun and wonderful thing to do. I got a bike that my grandparents bought me and I could ride all over Madison Park to visit people. I found it one of the most liberating and enjoyable moments of my life. And the relationships that I had with my childhood friends that I still keep in touch with were really rewarding and very informative and remained very informative. And so I had a lot of fun. I was the only person in my house, besides my grandparents. I performed every day. I had a captive audience. Before every meal, my grandparents insisted that I uh, provide a recitation. And my grandfather knew that I liked Robert Frost, and so he would say, uh, give me a line from Frost, the woods. Oh, the woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I, no, no, not that one, the other one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> The road not taken, you know? And so um, they were constantly engaging me. My childhood friends now remind me that I always wanted to be the teacher when we played school. Uh, people were really, really tolerant of me. And, uh, and I had a lot of fun. And I continue to have a lot of fun. Let's take a few questions. I wonder if we could send the microphone around. Let's begin with you, sir. And then we'll, we'll, we'll bounce back and forth from each side of the room. Yes. Hi. I, Eric, I just thought it's so great that the uh, stories that you sent out at Christmas have now found their way into a book. And my, my question is, when you read J.D. Vance's uh, Hillbilly Elegy, did you find uh, more similarities or more differences uh, yeah. in your life? So, uh, similarities. Not a lot of similarities, but enough similarities to realize that we have, we have a pretty shared story. And uh, J.D. wrote about a different type of community but he had grandparents 
who were very important to him. His environment was a bit more destructive, if I could use that term, uh, because of drugs and other things that he was surrounded with. I was not. In many ways, I kind of thought that this could be a black man's sonnet. I was playing around with this idea of um, an elegy, a hillbilly's elegy, a rural black man's sonnet or something like that. Um, you know, Mark Twain once said that history does not repeat itself, but it rhymes. And so there's a lot of symmetry, I think, to what we're experiencing now, but also a lot of symmetry between the narratives of people from different places across America, whether or not we realize it. You know? Yes, sir. Uh, as I sat and listened to this, and it is spellbinding, and, and this magnificent story, the, the thought that crossed my mind was, you grew up with some wonderful boys and girls. What happened to them? That's a great question. We were all encouraged to kind of pursue our own dreams and aspirations, and so many of my friends from Madison Park have, and they've done extremely well. Uh, they've pursued careers in the military, or they've pursued careers in manufacturing. Uh, they're living out their lives in meaningful and important ways. There are a good number of my friends, those that I grew up with on Motley Drive, who are still there. And their lives are no better than mine, just different. They've pursued family businesses, barbering or garden, uh, farming or whatever it might be. Um, and we get together. When I go back twice a year, we get together. Uh, I'm not ashamed of where most of my, um, my childhood friends have gone in life. And the ones who did, if I may just follow on that, the ones who did well and the ones who didn't do well, what's the variable that you've seen? Was there, were there one or two factors that kind of played the most heavily in those who did not do so well? I don't want to isolate it to Madison Park. I think there's much to one's DNA. I think there's nature versus nurture. We talk a lot about that. I also think you could ask the same question, and it's the why question. You have three kids. One becomes a neurosurgeon. Another sells drugs on Madison Street. And the other one does whatever he wants to, and you never hear about him again. And so I think in, in most families, in most instances, human nature plays out its way in different, in different forms. Let's get another question on the side. Yes, ma'am. Question to you with the extraordinary nurturance that you experienced at Madison Park. How do you replicate that experience or extend it in today's environment? It's a very different one. That's a great question. I think it's, I, I personally think it's somewhat easy. <laughs> I think we all have to be the bearer of light. And you have to create community everywhere you go. And so for me, the spirit of Madison Park is a metaphor, a metaphor for community, a metaphor for relationships, a metaphor for the ties that bind us together in a very politically divisive, polarized, culturally confusing world in which we live. We need community more than ever. And so Madison Park for me is about a place where there's a level of interdependence and people formed networks. We're all in this together. There are no strangers. but. When I met Alma Gildenhorn, I was carrying with me the, the metaphor for community. Community meets the God in me, meets the God in you. And so wherever you go, you have to create community. Vicki Sant is like a mother to me. I mean, Alma's also like a mother to me. <laughs> Two others in this room are like aunts to me. So I have, you take community with you. You create community. The Meyerhoffs are a part of my community. And so are you creating community? Do you know your neighbor? Um, it's kind of that cheers idea. Everywhere you go, everybody knows your name and they're glad you came. Do you know the people who live on the other side of the street? 
Do you make an effort to speak to the person sitting next to you? We are so, um, we're so overwhelmed with our digital devices. I was sitting in the computer lab in Scotland one day, and I was communicating to a friend of mine back in Birmingham, and then it dawned on me, I don't even know the person who's sitting next to me. How can I not acknowledge this person's value and worth while communicating to someone on the other side of the Atlantic? And so I think you just have to make more of an effort in creating community. And that means community outside of your community. Have you been to the other side of Washington, DC? That means leaving Georgetown and going to Southeast and understanding how people live and try to make a living and try to live out their dreams and aspirations and being involved in it, not microscopically, but actively engaged. I hear what you're saying about creating community. We live in a very polarized and a very, maybe wounded is the right word. There's a lot of people I think who feel rightly aggrieved about a variety of things Mm -hmm. and feel very distrusting it seems politically like the middle is falling out and the poles are becoming taller. And at least in my line of work, the people I encounter, especially with a lot of the stories today about, say, sexual harassment and the, the, the long overdue discussion about workplaces and what goes on in our workplaces, it, it seems to be a moment where people just need to grieve, to vent, to scream, to clap back, to be heard. I don't want to be your friend right now. I need you to pay attention to me and my pain. How do you build community in that? Look, I I think that we all have to be individual agents, but I think there are also organizations that kind of perpetuate that type of engagement. This is no promotion for the Aspen Institute, but the Aspen Institute's all about creating an environment for conversation. Someone said to me, well, the Aspen Institute's a safe place. No, it's not a safe place, it's the place that you should come to have conversation. There's no hiding from anything. Let's have open-minded, deliberate conversations about where we're coming from and what's important and to understand your view and as much as you want to understand my view. And so I think we have to do that individually. It's really hard. I think there are a lot of organizations that are purposed for that. you know, in a conversation we had earlier, I think the role of churches and synagogues and religious um, and spiritual communities play a very important role. Uh, I ask myself constantly, what has happened to the great uh, public intellectuals, spiritual public intellectuals of today? Rabbi Joshua Abraham Heschel marched with Martin Luther King. Reinhold Niebuhr, who gave us a serenity prayer, also reminded us that nothing is worth doing. Nothing that is worth doing could be accomplished in a lifetime. Therefore, we are saved by hope. Nothing that is good or beautiful makes complete sense in its immediate context of history. Therefore, we are saved by faith. Nothing that is worth doing could be accomplished alone. Therefore, we are saved by love. It takes some engagement. And so I'm, I'm greatly disturbed that people that I would expect to be the voices in the wilderness are not speaking up. And I'm from the South, and I'm, I'm kind of greatly disturbed about a lack of what I see as moral leadership that has always informed us and challenged the moral complacency of a leisure and secular society. Yes, sir. My name is Connie Zulam. I'm with the American Kurdish Information Network in DC. Um, What do you make of the advent of slavery in the Middle East? I'm referring to the plight of Yazidi Kurds by ISIS. Let me just say, slavery anywhere is bad. (laughs) Um, Institutions or regimes that uh, keep people from realizing their own human worth and value and that does not empower them to realize their own aspirations and God-given potential is bad. And governments that support that are bad governments. 
I think that's all I could probably say. The new book is called Madison Park, A Place of Hope. It's a great read. You've been a great guest. Let's Thank hear you from so Eric much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Eric Motley is the author of Madison Park, A Place of Hope. He's an executive vice president of the Aspen Institute. Joshua Johnson hosts 1A, a public radio program that took the place of the Diane Rehm Show. Their conversation was held in Washington, D.C. as part of the Aspen Institute's Alma and Joseph Gildenhorn book series. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Aspen Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.